Every Saturday is Catterday on Echoplex Media, and not only are we posting fucking cats, we invite all content creators to join our open panel. Visit echoplexmedia.com slash panel to learn how to join. Every third Saturday is Operation Catterday, where we cover this week and last year and play the best clips from the cast of conspiracy characters that now space has learned to loathe. The show starts at 8 p.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Find our full schedule at echoplexmedia.com. Echoplex Media, boo. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their presses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Like my straight white male dad did to me So if I see a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need I've got a pile of broken mirrors And I'm walking under ladders And I'm spilling tons of salt But to me that doesn't matter Cause my skin and my gender and my orientation Are the best things to have if you live in this nation I recommend it highly So if I see a penny on the ground I leave it alone and fucking flip it I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Shit's gonna work out for me Cause I'm a straight white male in America I've got all the luck I need Hey everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live every Wednesday on Twitch at 7pm Pacific. That's twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. But tonight we started at 8. Sorry about the late start. Uh, live viewers uh, had some internet trouble, so that's just the way things uh, go. You can support this project at uh, echoplexmedia.com. Just click the support tab and you'll find uh, your favorite way. My favorite is always the merch, but you can you can make your own decisions. Anyway, I'm Producer Dave. You can find me on Grinder, And uh, I guess uh, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Here's uh, an interview with Steven Pinker. You can't get at the truth if there are some things you can't say. We're a fallible species. We're riddled with, with um, biases and uh, fallacies. The only way that our species has managed to discover anything about anything is that some mortal people... What is going on with the light idea, in this video? ...say what's wrong with it, and then the best ideas survive. Welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. I'm John Tomasi. Man, lay off the fucking equalizer on the mic. Jesus Christ. President of Heterodox Academy. On every episode, we'll be taking you on an exciting intellectual journey 
an adventure across the complex and challenging terrain of opening. Oh, this is got, Oh, we're going to, we're going to check out the heterodox Academy going forward. This is, this is terrible. You'll be meeting some intellectual journey, some heterodox college presidents and some entrepreneurial students too. Our aim is to give you an insider's view of the complex terrain of open inquiry in higher education, the perils and the possibilities too. So let's get ready for another adventure into heterodoxy. Does academic freedom need like to his have glasses. a defense team on campus? Today, we'll be talking with a cognitive scientist, Stephen Pinker from Harvard. Steve is a founding member of Heterodox Academy and an active member still. He's also a founding member of the Council for Academic Freedom at Harvard. Let's see what Pinker has to say. Stephen Pinker, welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. Thank you. It's nice to have you here in New York. We just finished up. Like, what on earth are they doing with the audio? I'm an hour with you talking about some of your, your new work. This is it's great to have you here in the center with us. Thank you. Um, I want to talk with you about a number of things, but I want to start by talking about um, this, the Council for Academic Freedom at Harvard. And last spring in April, uh, you and a colleague, Bertha Madras, uh, published an op-ed in the uh, Boston Globe. They got a lot of attention. A lot of us around the country with that op-ed with real interest and enthusiasm. Can you just tell us a bit about what led to the formation of the council and what's what, what's going on? There are nationwide problems with our bold of them to uh, record their interview in a fish tank. Universities, there was a widespread impression, uh, to a large part correct, that universities, rather than the crucibles of ideas and, and debate, are uh, like medieval uh, seminaries subforcing uh, dogmas, and there are certain statements for which you can be censored, ostracized, uh, fired, punished, and that universities are therefore forfeiting their mandate of being places where uh, society uh, uh, gives people the mandate to, to So the idea that a university is just a big debate club is like a really dumb idea. Like that's like sort of baked, baked into this, that like that's what you do at a university. You just debate things. Um, there are times when you're going to have differing opinions and there's going to be interesting discussions about it in certain classes about certain things. Sure. But most of the time you're there to learn. You're not there to fucking, you're not there to debate. Like it's not a fucking Twitch politics panel. It's a fucking university. What is, I, I hate you this stuff. can't get at the truth if there's some things you can't say. We're fallible species. We're riddled with, with um, biases and uh, fallacies. The only way that our species has managed to discover anything about anything is that some mortal people venture an idea, others say what's wrong with it, and then the best ideas survive. Uh, if you disable that process by making some ideas punishable, then you're guaranteed to lock yourself into error, and you uh, forfeit the reputation of the university. And I'd have uh, encountered people intelligent people who uh, will respond to my saying, for example, that we have to act on climate change because a overwhelming consensus in science is that human activity is arming the planet. And they reply, well, why should we trust the consensus? Because everyone knows that academia, if you challenge the consensus, you get canceled. That's right. Uh, so even when the, the academic... Right, but that's because... The, okay, so like, check this out. Like, If you challenge... Okay, you can challenge, I suppose, but like, the problem is like Stephen Pinker is a linguist and uh, like a... He's in like the, um, like the liberal arts or whatever, which is a fine thing to be involved in. But like nobody, I, I don't give a fuck if Steven Pinker challenges the um, consensus about climate change. It's not his field. He hasn't published on it. None of what he says is ever going to be uh, subject to peer review. 
he's and, and I think he even believes in climate change. He's just using it as a weird example because of the tribe he's in. Almost certainly correct. As they are in greenhouse gases warming the planet, we have lost all our credibility because of this culture of cancellation. That's an impact. I said that we've been we've been following this at HXA about the, the decreasing trust in universities. There was a Gallup poll you always saw. Because of heterodox audio, who the fuck set up the sound for this? I mean, they legitimately sound like they're underwater. Summer that suggested that over the past twenty years, trust in higher education has cratered, cut forty seven percent to something like by twenty eight percent. Oh, a majority of people think that universities are harming uh, the health of the country. Uh, yes, which is remarkable, which is remarkable, and which is, uh, we think, I mean, it's driven by a number of developments, uh, such as uh, exponentially increased tuition, uh, but uh, a large contributor to the, the creation of trust in universities is the, often the viral videos and the accurate stories of students and professors being punished for, often for saying things that are true, uh, such as there are two sexes. Uh, and that oh man, of course. So they're fucking, fucking four minutes in. And, and that drove one of my colleagues, Carol Hoofen, out of science. Despite the university's self proclaimed goal of enhancing participation of women in science with a aim toward uh, equity. But if you're a woman that's just two sexes. Was she just saying, like, that's the thing is, like, I don't know the story they're talking about. Is that what she said? Is that all she said? Uh, I'd go. That, that may have been, was one of the last straws, it wasn't the only one. There are other cases of uh, mobs rising up to denounce a professor because they found that in several years ago, he quote signed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court against gay marriage. Uh, another professor had his course canceled because it evaluated the efficacy of counterinsurgency techniques in combating gang violence. Uh, there's a what? long list of things that could... These, did that, like nobody cares about that. Like who got canceled for fucking writing a thing about counterinsurgency tactics and gang violence? That sounds like an interesting thing to study. I would imagine maybe uh, some of the editorializing the person did about gang violence might have been the problem, not necessarily the work. But this is just my guess again. Like these are just like little like micro anecdotes where we would have to like go look up each one of these things and try to figure out like try to suss out what the fuck actually happened a law professor at harvard who was defending weinstein i believe for some of that is why she was uh Ooh, speaking of professors friends with uh with sex pests uh fucking uh little steven pinker here uh was good friends with epstein uh, even after the first uh conviction the first trial was post as a residential dean because he was defending uh, Harvey Weinstein, even though our constitutional system says that every defendant has the right to defense. The alternative being someone gets jailed because we, some, someone else says he's guilty. We obviously don't want that. So as we failed, it's not just the harm done to... But like the question uh, here is, like, was that law professor generally practicing law or was that law professor not really taking any clients and then Johnny on the spot to jump to the defense of, of Harvey Weinstein. Like again, like I would have to, it would take us fucking 30 minutes to figure out, suss out what the fuck happened and what he's talking about here. And so, uh, calling it a lot possible, but it is an abrogative of responsibility to educate students and how things work, such as the fact that if you have a criminal justice system where all it takes is to accuse someone to convict them and they don't get to defend themselves, 
then you open the door to untold horrors. History tells us that. Other comparisons to kangaroo courts in our repressive autocracies tell us that. And so for Harvard faculty member to defend Harvey Weinstein, uh, as loathsome in the scene might be, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It shows that we've got a functioning criminal justice system. If students protest the mere fact that a defendant has a criminal defense attorney, there's something deep that they don't understand about principles of justice. Yeah, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I say something? Yeah, like what that? just happened with, what, I mean, the audio just went... Those kinds of moments when students would say something like, we don't want the law professor at our school defending someone we think is evil and wrong and should be punished. That, that We used to call that a teaching moment. It's an opportunity to explain to students what the judicial system works, what the adversary system means. But there seems to be something new on the block in the last 10 or 15 years. For students who hear those teaching moments of discussions, they stick with their, they stick with their view. They don't back out. Well, the thing is, it's up to teachers to identify and uh, uh, take advantage of teaching moments. Uh, they're not called learnable moments. They're called teachable moments because they open up a world for teachers to teach, but we haven't been doing that. Well, any point, all too often, the administrators have been the opposite of new skills and opportunities. They have basically kissed the student's ass and say, uh, asses and said, this, this makes you upset. Okay, okay, we don't want you to be upset. What I want to push you on a little bit is this, um, and it's something I've, I've noticed, and I'll give, I'll give an example. Um, uh, Ray, East, New York City Police Commissioner Ray Kelly uh, gave a lecture at Brown University and which a bunch of students and some people from off campus came to the lecture and they shouted him down. It was one of the first public, big public shout downs. And when the students who organized that shout down were confronted with the fact they violated the student, student conduct and said they've done the wrong thing because they prevented other students from listening and so on, when they're confronted with those facts, the new thing on the block, in my view, was that the students stood their ground. They said that there are reasons for, you wouldn't cancel this lecture, we're going to cancel this lecture. This kind of speaker puts students of color in, in dangerous way. We have an obligation above your lectures, above your ideas, that justifies us in doing this. And that seems to be something new on the block now. There seems to be, there are sets of ideas that have grown within universities that I think justify some of these actions of students. Does that seem right to you, or is this a, is something just I justify, you mean? really does justify or that is uh is is, is uh, acceded to as uh something that is not opposed to ought to be i think this is there's a challenging of the fundamental principles underway and in the case of those groups the students of brown who stood proud to say we shouted them down and we did we do it again there were there, some of them referred to marcuse and there's an essay by marcuse in 1967 of repression toleration in which he talks about the the need to defend the oppressed even against the advocates of free speech and toleration. The toleration and neutrality are masks for power, and there's this critical theory idea that a lot of these liberal ideas of free speech and toleration and neutrality are simply masks for power. And they're, and well, no, I mean, this is, this is old. It's the, <clears throat> the paradox of tolerance, right? It's like the idea that like, <clears throat> if you tolerate everything, like no matter what, then people who are like intolerant will will eventually be able to gain power and gain a foothold, and then now the tolerance that you seek is gone. Two generations to unmask those things and to tear them down. Oh yes, so I agree that that is widely believed. I think it's pernicious belief. It's not a belief on which our universities are outed. It's not written into the 
procedures are universally instinct principle story, which is or or an archocracy. Uh, Marcuse was a, um, a Marxist, or maybe he took Marxism in his own new directions. And, but that's not the society we live in, and I'm glad it isn't. And there are good arguments why it shouldn't be. Namely, that there, how do we know that what Marcuse is saying is right? Why should we shut him up? Why should we shut out the students? Well, because you can't shut him up. I mean, he said this stuff a long time ago. Who so are aren't we for Good luck. Who's that? Uh, the, the, the fact that they think they're right is not a good enough reason, because I think I'm right. Um, so do I get to shut them down? And the answer has to be no. No one gets to shut, shut, shut anyone down, to shut anyone up. Uh, ideas, uh, including that one, can be voiced, but they don't carry the day when it comes to silencing their opponents. And in the case of the, the uh, police commissioner, it's another case in which voicing heterodox opinions is not just a case of uh, a, a prerogative of a professor or a, uh, an arcane point of principle. It's not like the famous case in which the ACLU defended the right of Nazis to march in the Jewish community in Skokie in the late 1970s, that we may find the content postures of a Republican, but we defend their right to say it. There are in the university today, many of the case the opinions that are being repressed are probably true. Uh, in the case of uh of say what um the, the New York East should do New York least New York reduces homicide rate by seventy five percent in eight years. That's an awful and that was an awful lot of black lives saved who'd be dead if it wasn't for bone. So that's whoa, the whoa, 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 whoa. So the, the, the police chief can't take credit for that. The, this was during a time uh, where, like, the homicide rate, like, nationally was uh, going down dramatically. Violent crime was going down dramatically. The police chief didn't do that. Uh, he may have done things to help. I don't know. May have not done things to help. Far from reinforcing oppression or racial oppression, this saved more black lives than all the protests put together, what, what he did to induce uh, gang violence. Whoa, dude. Yo, come on, Steve. I mean, whatever. Like, 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 like I expected him to talk about this in any other way. Be, uh, or at least he ought not to be repressed if what we want to care about is the well-being of minority communities. And you don't know whether it will be beneficial to them unless you hear the case being made. You can argue against that. I'm, I'm wondering whether there's something new um, in universities that we can identify. You've taught at Harvard for a long time. How, how long have you been at Harvard? I've been at Harvard for 20 years. Before that, I was at MIT for 21 years. And before that, I was Harvard Stanford. So I've been an assistant for a whole long time. And so, and, and yet the academic, the, the Council on Academic Freedom was founded just this, this year in, in April 2023. Why then? Why not before? Is this, is this, you can you, can you explain? I, mean, I, I, I all these things we know about the rise of this. Do you oh, know that's what's happened? Oh, it's about way worse. I mean, well, I, you know, I, the, it, just as an objective fact, there are far more firings, censorings, um, uh, sanctions, or content speech in the last uh, six years than they were occurring beforehand. Foundation for Individual Rights of Expression is documented. I mean, do you have, d- this is a data guy. To, I mean, you, you know, you, you, okay, during like a conversation like this, you can't expect him to bring the data, but has he published this anywhere? Is the data for this somewhere? Were people not getting fired? I actually think tenure is kind of stupid in the idea that like a person who works at like Old Navy or whatever can get fired for um, not folding the clothes right, but then like a professor can just while out and we're like, well, they have academic freedom. And it's like, well, well aren't, they, aren't they at work? Like, Obviously, it's a university. So, uh, so 
the answer to the question why now is it's gotten worse uh, and it, it and it, 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 they timely developed that was fortunate for us for propaganda reasons it wasn't the impetus of council the fire publishes Mankins of free speech five out of 240 universities yes i recruited last place <laughs> yeah the score of zero and that movie got score of zero because they decided not to go into negative numbers but now I, I didn't know that negative numbers part yeah, but who so, did the survey and what were the parameters how did they how did they do this what survey is he talking about is he talking about his own survey from this organization that he's part of that's next year who knows we, did, we, we, have, we have something to aspire to uh, that was helpful in answering the question that you just asked, like, why do we need this at Harvard? And it, believe me, it is a ranking that we hold to the attention of our new president and our new dean in saying why, uh, why we are needed. What we hope to do is, first of all, is make people aware of the, uh, the value of free speech in the university and just why we have it, what it is, uh, why it's necessary to uh, enforce policies that are already on the books that uh, prevent the harassment or punishment of people for speech, to uh, come to the aid and support and supper of people who have been targeted and then ostracized, which can be emotionally devastating, to uh, when, uh, as so often happens, there are activists who are yammering to the ear of a dean, pressuring them to do something, uh, we're going to yammer into the other ear. Uh, so at least didn't the Harvard, like the president of Harvard just get fired for, uh, but I guess that's different because she's black. I have to think about what's the, uh, the right decision rather than just making the trouble go away by, uh, by, by, by trying to placate the Mauritius objectors. Uh, uh, and we hope to encourage student groups that have a parallel aid and uh, groups in other universities. And Harvard has the you could ask the question, who cares what happens at Harvard? Or just a university. I mean, that's my fucking, that's my, I mean, I, it sucks that lady who is the, the president got fired over some bullshit, but like in the end, yeah, who cares what happens at Harvard? No, first-hand experience, a tendency to think far too much of ourselves, but for better or worse, the world cares about what happens at Harvard. Harvard. So we feel a responsibility to capitalize on that possibly undeserved attention, but at least to make something good. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing. One of the, one of the lines from the op-ed that really struck me, uh, you and Madras said, quote, academic freedom needs a defense theme. Yes. And but, that, that was a really striking line. Also, this, this does actually relate to um, my own special uh, specialty of cognitive psychology, where one of the reasons we need free speech is that people are fallible. That's how we're Saddled with these brains. Yeah, but like the, the antidote to cancel culture is generally just apologizing. With fallacies, biases. Foremost among them, the uh, motivated reasoning, and we steer our reasoning to a conclusion that we wanted to be true in the first place. And uh, the my side bias, or we can call intellectual tribalism. That is, we favor whatever position makes our coalition look good. And these are. These are psychological phenomena that mean we should be incapable of discovering truth. As it happens, our species has discovered some truths. You know, we figured out you know, DNA, or solar system, galaxy, and brain science, and great uh, tectonics. How do we manage to do it, given that each one of us is so saddled with biases? And the answer is we form communities in which one person can criticize the idea of, of another. And do you think the students and faculty members who are skeptical of free speech or are behind some of these um, 
campaigns to fire people. Do they deny the things you just said? What, what's, what do you think? When I, when I said before, why, why is it happening now? And I said, why, why form this council now? You answered, because those problems have been rising now. But I guess I think, what I mean by that question is, why are the problems rising now? Is there something, is there something happening that you, do you diagnose why this the need, the need has arisen then? Yeah, so in terms of you know, root causes, yeah, uh, there, uh, there are a number of candidates. Uh, the country, of course, has gotten more politically polarized. Some people blame social media, book chambers, filter bubbles. Um, but another possible cause is uh, residential seg- and social segregation by education. Increasingly, people with higher degrees of education hang out with uh, one another in urban uh, centers. Oh, uh, yes. Um, social stratification via um, maybe we'll call it um, perceived intelligence or education. Yeah, that's new. People that never happened before. What the fuck? Some towns. People with less of an education live in the outer suburbs or rural areas. And so, and the institutions that used to cross social classes, which more and more now leads educational classes, like party, like churches, like uh, service organizations have unleaked. So people just create social circles where everyone thinks and feels so. I'm thinking of Charles Murray's coming to Perp. Oh, Charles Murray, you say. Charles Murray, you say. Um, the bell curve guy, Charles Murray, you say. Controversial thinker, I'll just see the reason what we, we just touched on, but that's one of his main theses, right? They were divided as society based on that, on that package. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's what there's, contributing factor. There's contributing factor. There's also some uh, legal... So real quick on Charles Murray, the uh, podcast where Ezra Klein spoke to Sam Harris about the, the issue with Sam uh, platforming and basically fangirling over... Uh, Charles Murray was actually really good because uh, Ezra Klein managed to put uh, Charles Murray into context that Charles Murray isn't just some random academic uh, publishing, you know, books about uh, social stratification. He has been advocating for a policy that would kind of enshrine that his the ideas of the bell curve into like national policy to like stop things like affirmative action and to stop any like programs for basically the poor who he thinks are basically he thinks are poor because they're stupid because they don't perform well on uh, an IQ test or whatever. So that's like the, that's a, the Charles Murray. The problem with him isn't necessarily his poorly done academic work in the bell curve. It's, it's more that it's, you can't separate it from the rest of his career as a, a, a person advocating for policy that, uh, comforts the comfortable and afflicts the afflicted. Had been perhaps unintended consequence of uh, restricting speech, such as the criterion of a hostile climate for uh, Title IX, that uh, it could be actionable. You can sue a company or a university if uh, not just if they're over acts of discrimination, but just if the climate is uh, uh, I'm uh, welcoming to women or minority groups, sexual, racial minorities. Well, wait a minute. How would the, if it wasn't like through uh, people's behavior, how else would the climate become unhospitable to women or minority groups? If it wasn't like, how, what is it just fucking, they have the thermostat set, set wrong? Like, what, what does he mean? What do you mean the climate's hospitable? But it's not due to anything anybody did. 
well, then how the fuck do you create a hostile work environment if nobody did anything to create the hostile work environment? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, if it's shown that the work environment is hostile to women or you know, gay, uh, gay people like me or, you know, black folks or, you know, Asian folks or whatever it may be, people are clearly doing things to cause that to happen. It doesn't just fucking materialize. And that opens the door to all kinds of police their speech, which contribute to private. Um, at work, yes. Again, like this guy, they, they want to separate the idea of being a professor or working in academia from the idea that it's a job. And that fucking kind of bothers me like a lot, actually. Again, I go back to like customer service workers. You think the person working at fucking McDonald's has free speech? Oh, hell no. <laughs> uh-uh, they'll fire you for not being fucking cheery enough. Like, get the fuck out of here. This is like some elite, this, this shit is so elitist. Um, there's the uh, burgeoning bureaucracy supporting the uh, climbing, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and uh, the mushrooming uh, bureaucracy in universities of bureaucrats empowered often to, to clap down on speech or to apply filters such as diversity statements and job applicants to wean out the people who don't conform to a particular ideology and a particular sense factual. Oh, but you just copy and paste that shit. I've talked to a couple academics who have had to uh, do diversity statements or whatever, be it for to, to apply for a grant or to apply for a promotion within an organization uh, for any number of reasons. And you know what they do? They copy and paste that shit. They got bo- there's that, that shit is boilerplate. You don't got to write it. This is dumb. This is dumb as fuck. This is like getting mad that you got to dot your I's and cross your T's. There, there were intellectual kernels back from when I was a student in the 70s, such as uh, Herbert Marcuse and the idea that, uh, that, that uh, speech and knowledge are actually just uh, pretexts of the powerful to suppress uh, other people. Well, the argument there is that it, they can be used that way. Ideally, they wouldn't be used that way, right? That, that like speech and knowledge would be uh, the great equalizer in our society. And I mean, to some extent they are, but in other ways, maybe they're, maybe those things are used to maintain a broken status quo. That's, that's the argument there. I don't know if that's Marcuse's argument specifically, but that's like the basic argument is that these, these things aren't always they're not always, they don't always work that way because they can't, because they don't exist in a vacuum. Speech and knowledge don't exist in a vacuum outside of the society in which you speak and learn things. Wedded to postmodern epistemology, there's no such thing as objective truth. There's no such That's thing as objective Postmodernist, I'm sorry, this is just, they, I hate when they do this. Postmodernism is not the obje- the rejection of objective reality. That what they're describing is basically a delusion. <laughs> Postmodernism is the basically the school of thought that came after the modernist school of thought, and it is skeptical of some of the aspects of modernism, but brings some of the aspects of modernism along with it. Some of the things that it might be skeptical of, or some of the things that a postmodernist might be skeptical of, might be even grand narratives like Marxism. Objective truth, you know, all the reasons that I gave for the courage of freedom of speech, namely that's the only way we can attain the truth, go out the window. There's no truth to be attained with just warring dogmas, and let's just make sure that our dogma has more muscle than the other person's dogma. 
and free speech has nothing to do with it. And so the ascendancy of those ideas, particularly the academic humanities, means that they are kind of congenial to repression of speech. There may be a Maybe there is an external ex exogenous cause that you can identify that perhaps once this idea took hold, started with Cephalides, and because academics still hire their own, out of the point of the realm of academia is prestige. What is prestige? It's the Professor X saying Professor Y is, is, is okay, Professor Y saying Professor X is okay, and there can be a self-reinforcing system. But how else, the, like, how the... Like, well, how the fuck else would you do it? Would you just fucking have the fucking neighborhood vote? Like, what are you talking about, dude? There, that's how any organization and bureaucracy is going to work. It necessarily has to work that way. This guy's been fairly uh, successful in uh, large bureaucracies that work that way. That's how he got to be famous. Uh, I really unchallenged uh, police. Or even at, even at targeting of certain ideals or departments that need to try to turn in a certain direction to make these ideas more prominent. Maybe out of the theory of prominent, for example. Yeah, so they can be self um, self reinforcing as they never refuse to bow, uh, refuse to admit going into submission, anyone who disagrees. So the idea once having gained a toehold might uh, take over because of the lack of external. Uh, it puts to the uh, intellectual content of scholarly inquiry. When you, lots, when, you got, when you and your colleagues launched the council uh, at Harvard, you mentioned a report from 1990 of the, the Harvard Free Speech Guidelines as a touchstone for career ideas. And you quoted from the very beginning of that report. I have a copy of that right here with me. You quoted from the very beginning of that report where the report writers say, quote, free speech is, is uniquely important to the university because we are a community committed to reason and rational discourse. Free exchange of ideas is vital for our primary function of discovering and dis dis disseminating ideas through t research, teaching, and learning. Curtailment of free speech undercuts the intellectual freedom that defines our purpose, defines the purpose of the universe. Yeah, and it's not just because, you know, like being free, it's fun to be able to say whatever you want, but there is a rationale, which we've, we've spoken about this conversation, namely, that's how species only means of uh, a take. In this, in this, in the same report, um, at the very end of the report, the section seven, they talk about they recommend the creation on something they call an advisory committee on free speech, and they suggest that there, sh there should be formed at Harvard some kind of a student. I'm reading it now from the report. Quote: A student faculty advisory committee on free speech should be established by the faculty council, and the purpose of that committee would be they they list two purposes to discuss ambiguities which may arise in applying the guidelines of free speech through time, and also to introduce these values to new generations of the university community, which are, which are ideas that I think that I put in the and op-ed describing the, the rationale for the creation of the council are similar to these ideas. But the, was, there, was there ever a, a, an advisory committee for free speech formed in 1990 or before the council? Not, not that they know of. I've never heard of it. Yes, no, and, and we're, <clears throat> we, we weren't, uh, uh, it panels to serve that function, but that's in a way that is what we're stepping into. Yeah, and I, very few people are aware of this policy, which was both in fact is, is binding, and it is something that we can point to. We might need to suggest updating it, but it means that even though as a private university, Harvard is not uh, subject to the First Amendment, but if there is a policy, then uh, the policy has to be followed. Or, or change. And so um, 
But like, how do you make a free speech policy? I don't understand. Like, this is a workplace. Like, people pay a lot of money to go to Harvard. Some of the professors there make a lot of fucking money. Some of the some of the administrators make a lot of fucking money. This isn't like a fucking like a like a men's club where they get together and have a scotch and talk about the issues of the day. This is a place where people are trying to gain value out of, you know, they spent money or maybe they worked really hard and got scholarships and got accepted, you know, and like, this is not, I don't, what do they, I don't like, what do they think a university is supposed to be? When the council began on last April, there were 50 members. Uh, HSA has always been proud to say that Harvard was, for, for many years, the place where they had the most members, 53 members of the Harvard faculty are HSA members. But not every member of the, of the council is, a, is an HSA member. You are, for example, your co-author, um, Bertha Madras, is, is not current. I'll have to call her after this, after this happens. <laughs> yeah, we have a good side. Not on social side. But, um, so you started with 50, but you've grown. Yes, I, I spent a remarkable number, 160, perhaps. And, and is, that, is that faculty? Yes. So that's a remarkable, that's a remarkable achievement. So 160 Harvard faculty are joining into this council. Yeah, it's still a, you know, it's still a minority and that there is, there are kind of age and sex and uh, discipline gradients, which. Oh yeah. Age and sex. Uh, he means uh, old, old men, <laughs> age, sex, and discipline gradient. Oh, he, he mean old men. That's who's on this, this panel like to um, that will can you describe what those are uh more older faculty than younger more in the uh sciences and medical school also there the humanities interest them uh interest can you say anything about out of that, that what do you say 160 how many women how many black folk uh, well so by by far the um humanities are the the source of certainly of the Postmodernist um, mindset that uh, eliminates a rule. Well, to be fair, philosophy speak. is in the humanities. So any school of philosophy is generally going to come out of the humanities because that's the umbrella under which philosophy tends is like should in a tainted truth and there's no serious truth, um, and that is more likely to see any kind of discussion of criteria of, of, of argumentation of reasoning as just pretext to power. So naturally less sympathetic, but also there's another association that we would, um, we take pains to avoid that is in people's minds and that is between free speech and the, uh, the political right. Uh, I think there are very few people on the council would identify as conservative. Um, there are a couple of Nazca's. Whether or not you're like conservative isn't like your decision. Professors who identify as conservative, at least the ones that are all in their nineties, uh, which is itself is a problem. As, as I don't have to tell you, yeah, we got all I don't know of all people. Um, but the, um, but of course, in academia, uh, as I put it, the uh, academia is at the, the left pole, just as when you're at the North Pole, all directions are south. Academia uh, is yeah. not at the left pole. This is just stupid. I feel like these are a lot of people who, you know, maybe in the nineties were like liberals or whatever, and then the world passed them by. And I, as I get older, man, I just hope that that doesn't happen to me. I really hope that doesn't happen to me. 
mean, if I think someone's wrong or whatever, and they're to my left, I'm going to say they're wrong, but I'm not going to suggest to you that the reason that they're wrong is because they're to my left, right? You can be fucking, you can have any belief system and be wrong or have a dumb idea or be advocating for things that are uh, wrong, stupid, or harmful, but it wouldn't be because they're uh, liberal or that because they're too far to the left. In fact, I think for people out there studying their, um, if we're going to do the uh, fallacies thing, that is the ad hominem fallacy. You are X, therefore you are wrong, right? So, um, Mr. Pinker, you're supposed to be like a deep thinker and a rationalist. So uh, you should maybe stop uh, use, employing the ad hominem fallacy. Just saying that these people are all crazy because they're too far to the left. You could say they're too far to the left and they're crazy, I suppose. But then you'd have to tell us why they're crazy. And if the only reason they're crazy is because they're too far to the left, well, boom, that's the ad hominem fallacy. Sorry, friend. All directions are left. Are right, I'm sorry. In the left pole, all directions are right. And people who are you know, classical 60s liberals are now thought of as, as conservative. By uh, yep, that's called time marching on. Yes. Yes, a lot of people who would have had what we thought of as liberal ideas in the 60s were homophobic, deeply homophobic. The hippies, for example, Oh, it was free love, but uh-uh, not if you were gay. So we would think of those people as homophobic, socially conservative today. They were socially liberal then, but times change, baby. It's been, it's been 60-something years since the 60s. Standards of modern, progressive, intersexual, critical theory, social justice, politically correct ideology, the trapped. Now, there's also the fact that the Threats to academic freedom from within the academy largely come from the left, whereas the threats from outside the academy largely come from the right. Uh, so largely in southern states of Florida and Texas. Uh, but when it comes to academic censoring academics, it's uh, these, these are left-wing academics. And it's censored before it's an easy bit less left. And so in your, your experience um, at Harvard and MIT and before at Stanford and other places, these trends of um, ideological conformity on the on the on the political dimension, political access, they've been getting worse and worse. At least the imbalance is growing, growing worse and worse. Is that part of the explanation for why this eruption of anti-free speech behavior is happening on campuses? Yeah, I think so. Um, that the so the other thing, and I, I don't want to. Actually, I'll boil it down <clears throat> to its simplest version. Me telling you that you should shut the fuck up is nobody's free speech has been violated. That's just more speech. Because I'm allowed to tell you that you should shut the fuck up. <laughs> if I'm not allowed to tell you that you should shut the fuck up, then boom, now my free speech has been infringed upon. So the, the question here, and it's been the question since we started the intellectual dollar tree when they talk about these issues, it's like, at the end of this fucking road, apparently somebody has to shut the fuck up. And um, what I'm, I'm, I hate to be the one to, break it to these uh, geniuses uh, that's not going to happen also there's another point that if and i make in our office that free speech is is cognitively very unnatural it doesn't deserve to, to people that it meets constant defense otherwise we backslide into uh orthodoxy because what is natural this is well established in cognitive psychology is the people on my side are self-evidently right the people who are on the other side are spreading dangerous falsehoods. 
therefore, but this like uh, this like uh, you're now you're operating under the assumption that nobody even thought about this any of the issues, right? You that you think you just reflexively think that because people are in your tribe that they're right, and like this like takes away everybody's agency. It's like, well, I, we're the only ones thinking about stuff. Well, this guy's got a tribe too, right? This guy's got a tribe. His tribe is like fucking Sam Harris. And formerly, probably not anymore, like Brett Weinstein, but this guy probably would tell you that Brett Weinstein's a crank. Uh, but when Brett Weinstein was just running around complaining about being canceled when he resigned from his job and then, then fucking sued them and got half a million dollars, this guy was all hunky-dory with Brett Weinstein. This guy's tribe, is, as he said, probably people like Charles Murray. And he generally, I think he thinks that those people are self-evidently right or that he's thought about it and has decided they're right. I don't know. Pick your fucking poison there. But it's not like other people haven't thought things through. Now, when they talk about the students and stuff, you know, some of these people are 19 years old. They're going to be more impulsive. I know I was a lot more impulsive when I was uh, maybe under 25 or under 30, right? So this sort of, this sort of mixing up of this stuff is, is got to be on purpose because I don't think these people are dumb. The society, we have to shut up the people who are obviously incorrect and immoral. Now, of course, the people on the other side say the same thing with side switch. Uh, and if you, a little bit of wisdom, if you can, if, if, if you can dislodge yourself from your own advantage points and work down on yourself as a, as a human being. Oh, but that's like the concept of going clear in Scientology, essentially, where you can disabuse yourself of basically yourself. That's what they say once you've fucking gone clear in Scientology, right? That you've, like remove, like rid yourself of your reactive mind, and now just your like analytical mind is taking control. Um, what he's describing is Scientology. Hey, I'm not an angel, and I do believe it's it was, you know, they're wrong. Uh, how will I know I'm wrong unless I hear other opinions? But that's that does require uh, a uh, a campaign of persuasion, which I think we've been remiss at doing. Uh, the old arguments for free speech are ones that have been built and no one bothers me to get anymore. Now, I mean, now we're trying to change that and it is changing. I mean, but yeah, by that, but, but uh, I mean, like according to that argument, we should all be arguing with flat earthers that we should just be trying to persuade the flat earthers that the earth is a fucking sphere. Like at some point we have to like decide, you know, sometimes it's going we're, we're to get it wrong too. Oh my God. Sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But at some point, like to move forward in any like endeavor, you have to kind of like be like, well, this is this thing, and now it's time to move on to the next thing. Sure, people can go back and revisit the first thing that you figured out, but like moving on from it and being like, well, we kind of figured this out. Um, that's great. Otherwise, we'd be um, we'd still be trying to reinvent fire. So there's a, there's a sense that um, scholarship is in some sense, some sense uh, an unnatural practice. That then good scholarship, reaction, thinking about ideas, checking our premises, challenging ourselves is not natural to human beings in all kinds of life. You wrap much better go with the group, throw it, throw it, and especially when it comes to scholarship that meets the idea of disinterest truth that may not be your current pet beliefs. Richard Feynman had a famous uh, saying that uh, uh, above all in science, you must not fool yourself because you were the easiest person to fool. Uh, so knowing that, that bit of meta-awareness of oneself as a fallible thinker, which doesn't come naturally, but what comes naturally is, you know, I'm obviously right. 
Looks like, like hold on, the, the process of science isn't that individuals manage to remove their own personal biases from the work they're doing. That's fucking stupid. The idea that we in science is that we test hypotheses. Sometimes over and over and over and over again. So the idea is that the test, the testing of the hypothesis over and over and over again by different people will hopefully, eventually, you'll, you'll get to a theory, uh, which is, you know, uh, people think, that's, which is, you know, everybody here knows that's different than I have a theory. It's like, this is like a true thing. That's the point of the sciences. The point of science isn't to like for me, the scientist, to remove my personal bias and figure it out. That's fucking stupid. That's like an overly individualized version of what's supposed to be going on here. Fucking, fucking, it's like, it's a very, very neoliberal idea. And it's just not how the fucking cake gets baked. Inside my skin. Uh, I had this for cognitive leak to get out of my skin. Uh, that makes me create space for people who disagree with me. One of the things that when, when Alpha came out, there was a bunch of responses. Obviously, people took a, were extremely interested in what's happening at Harvard and what, what motivated the, the group of you to do this. One of the really striking pieces that I read in the wake of that was an op-ed published by the Crimson editors that were, it was kind of lukewarm, I might say, that might be generous, a little bit critical, I think, of the, of the announcement, surprisingly enough. And I, you may not remember, it's probably lots gone by since you since you published that piece last spring, but, but I wrote down a couple of things that, 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 that the editor said. They, swung, they, they called out a line that you just mentioned a moment ago from the op-ed, where you, the, you, you and Bert, it says something like, when activists shout in the ears of the administrator, we will speak pretty calmly, but uh, consistently and forcefully, forcefully in, the, in the other ear. And the editors of the school paper, they called that out. They said, um, activism and academic freedom should be seen as allies, not enemies. Which was kind of an interesting point, Matt. What, what, what do you make of that, of that idea that, that um, activism and academic freedom should be thought of as allies rather than adversaries? Well, in practice, they um, could be allies. In practice, they often have been adversaries because the activists who are trying to shut down the people who disagree with them. So we are obviously not all activism. And many activists have also been free speech advocates. Uh, Martin Luther King and many others. Uh, Wait, what? Straight of stupid actors. Martin Luther King was like, I have a dream that one day no one will be fucking canceled. What the fuck is this guy talking about? Hard to be activism is to shut down the people who disagree with it or to, to bully and coerce deans and presidents into not pulling under and uh, acceding to their demands, which all too many presidents and deans have done. Uh, because we think it hasn't been an adversarial process of someone um, uh, speaking to their other ear, right? Saying, "I, I, the, this is another contributor to the phenomenon." As universities, the phenomenon of uh, uh, of a weakening of free speech protections is that it's often been noted that the university has become more corporatized. The um, person in charge, the president, often, and it's not been a vanguard of university values, but rather of university image and bottom line, how we took our builders, how we stay out of headlines. In fact, it's been remarked that it's the chief counsel of the university, not the president. Uh, and I've been shocked as how uh, weak-willed and the touch we flabby the responses of university presidents often has been 
to these pressure campaigns, uh, rather than saying, "Look, just because this, uh, uh, just because uh, this is your crusade, doesn't mean you get to give your ways to have to persuade others." Uh, no, you can't scream obscenities into a professor's face uh, if there's something being says that makes you uncomfortable. No, we don't have the right not to ever hear an opinion that makes you feel bad. Uh, yeah. Basic. But you do have the right to talk back. Yeah, you can't wait. You can't scream at the professor. Yeah, that's fine. But what if the professor is like being a shit to the students like Peter Bogosian did? Like Peter Bogosian claimed he was like canceled. Well, Peter Bogosian also fucking uh, you don't know this about him. He used uh, human subjects in uh, some of his work without uh, uh, going about it in the right uh, way, the right ethical way, according to proper guidelines. But also like after he uh, resigned and claimed he was canceled, people came out more like <clears throat> what a pain in the ass he was to work with and it's like well if you're a pain in the ass to work with at most places you get fucking fired so i don't know i just i just don't get it again this is nothing like some a lot of times when these people lose their jobs or whatever it has nothing to do with their academic work in bogosian's case it did um because he was again using human subjects it's not like he was doing science experiments on them in like a, like a sort of like a a scary movie kind of way, but he was using human subjects and you have to abide by a bunch of guidelines if you're going to do that. And he decided not to do that. And, um, and that's part of the reason he was, uh, uh, probably asked to resign. But then again, after he resigned, everybody was like, that guy was a pain in the ass. And so, okay. The, the human subjects thing was his academic work, but that wasn't free speech or any academic freedom. He was actually violating the, uh, some of the rules I would say that allow academic freedom. And then like, it's actually not um, academic freedom to just be a giant shit to everybody you work with at the university. <laughs> like that has nothing to do with academia or academic freedom. You're just being a giant shit. Of grown up discourse, but the presidents and deans haven't made them partly because they just want to make trouble go away as quickly as possible. Partly because they've been often promoted from the ranks of their um, and have the administrative competence. They've, they've previously been a deal. They've recently a department in some particular field. But there's no selection for uh, ability to think clearly of the mission of the university in the 21st century. Why we have a university? How ought to 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 run this more custodial management, increasing the endowment, keeping it keeping out the negative headlines. And so that corporatization of the university, it seems like yet another factor. We're, we're collecting factors, you and I, that might be explaining why these things are happening. One yeah. might be an increasing, increasing demographic drift towards an ideological conformity across the faculty. What? Another is a set of ideas rising from a new generation of students, taking some of these Marcusean points and postmodern points. Like I'm serious. guaranteeing you most of the people, the, even people in academia who are doing the things they're calling Marcusean, I guarantee you, like a fucking 2% or those people, if that, even know who the fuck Marcuse is. Nobody knows who this is. I had to find out who it was because all these people keep talking about him. Seriously. And now there's a third piece, perhaps, something like a corporatization on the university and the role of the university president. On that last point, is that a new phenomenon? I mean, haven't presidents always been sort of weak-willed, or was is it, am, I, am I not thinking of that correctly? Yeah, I shouldn't. Uh, I of all people should not um, be too nostalgic about the past. Uh, there used to be highly outspoken university presidents, of which uh, um, John Silver may have, uh, a long-time president at the U, just have a word. 
The Wimbledon Heritage took up maybe going too far. How about Robert Hutchins, the University of Chicago, and uh, Bob Zimmer? Say where he receives Who stands out by, by contrast class? Who stands out? Yeah, quite right. But the age of university presidents as intellectual, public intellectuals, uh, I think that the heyday of that was uh, decades ago. That they're not, that's not their job. The university president is not supposed to be a public intellectual. They're supposed to be a highly effective bureaucrat. That's their job. I recently had Palmer Canalis on the show, who is the president of the University of UATX, to talk about some of these um, early struggles they had with our announcement and, and, some, and some of the controversy there were. So UATX, that's University of Austin, Texas. That's Barry Weiss's uh, university, I believe. Because I believe that would be the University of Texas at Austin would be the, um, the public university from the University of Texas system. So this is like Barry Weiss's uh, university where I famously made a meme <laughs> that said, University of Austin, if the faculty here was good enough for the kids at Epstein Island, they're good enough for your kids too. Involved in very early on. One of the interesting developments at UATX that I've been following, that I'd love to get your take on it, concerns their, this novel, novelty that they're developing recently, like over the past year, I think, of not waiting for the virtuous president to arrive and fix the university, but rather to try to develop a kind of institutional structure that protects free speech. Yeah, have you followed the Judicial Council idea, Austin? Yes. So uh, this university, if they're interested in free speech and like heterodoxy, heterodoxy, would it doesn't just mean you have a bunch of fucking weirdos who are crying about free speech. If they're really into this idea of uh, having like a, like a broader conversation, have any lefties over there? Got any lefties over there? Any 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 Marcusians at this university, or is it all just fucking people who cry about cancel culture? Because that's not very heterodox at all. That's just a different kind of orthodoxy. I think that is uh, a, a, a valuable innovation. And so, I'll, so I'll, let me describe it for our listeners who may not know it. So the, one of the ideas at, at Austin is to have a set of basic rights and freedoms established in a kind of constitutional structure. And then the innovative feature is to have a quasi-independent judicial board or a judicial body that any complainant who feels that his or her free speech rights or due process rights have been violated can take the complaint to that board and that board can override the president's decision, override any policy at the university because it's defending the rights. Of, so it's separation of powers based on the American boundment. Yes. And, and oh, let's I, just, let's just create an even more elephantine bureaucracy at a university. That'll fix everything. Just have the galaxy brain panel that can override everybody. Find that Neil Ferguson came up with that idea, as I understand, and whether they adopted fully, I was yet to be determined. I, I think, but this it's kind so of this is also this is also dumb too because you think that the president of a major university doesn't convene advisory panels about specific issues like all the fucking time. I would assume that's part of their job as the head of a bureaucracy would be to get input from different panels and different groups of people within the organization to try to make the right decision. Idea. It suggests that what it shows me is that every university in the country is, is sort of saddled with a situation where we're all relying upon our virtuous president to arrive and to stay virtuous despite all the counter incentives. Austin's taking a different approach, building in this institutional structure 
What do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's one of the uh, that is a, a truly constructive role of startup universities is to expand our our mental universe of governance structures and everything else in the universities because universities have gotten locked into a particular. Yeah, but box. this is the kind of university that would have a fucking like ethics and game journalism one hundred and one or something. This is like the fucking IDW MRA university, like. The, it's so bad and they're not like they keep talking about it like it's like a university it's like they're they're not it's not what we think of as a university at this point it's like a vanity project for these weirdos even steven pinker himself left i think he left though because people were making fun of the university because too many uh, of epstein's friends were on the faculty and he was like well he's like you know i really don't like it when people talk about this so i'm gonna go ahead and uh, i'm gonna go ahead and bow out bottle of governance and, and everything else, partly because they all are uh, part of this kind of self or reciprocally grooming community where the criterion for you know, so-called excellence is just the subjective judgments of uh, other so-called excellent people and we can get a... Yeah, that's uh, actually, that. how else do you do it? The, uh, the, the judgment of excellence is going to be based on the subjective government, like fucking opinions of like other people who... Uh, other people think are excellent. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's like how, how what the fuck else are you gonna do? God gonna come down from the fucking sky and uh, just decide who's excellent? Like other like, unless you have like some kind of autocracy or some kind of like thing where, well, my dad was the president of the university. Now I'm the president of the university, and I get to decide. Like how how else would you do it? We have Fadi, I thought. Bunch of people all saying how we, everywhere the Amazon is prestigious, and anyone had uh, anyone who disagrees is not prestigious, and you keep them up, they're not up to our, our standards. So, some way of just breaking that. Um, but that's but you're all you're try, all they're trying to do over there at the the fucking University of Phrenology is to create a parallel system that does the same thing based on the values of wah people are being canceled. Just that's that's there's no. It's the same thing. It's just that you agree with the opinions of the people there as to who is excellent. And again, this guy's this guy's whole career is built on other people thinking that he's excellent. Breaking into that 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 um, crystal or that bubble, uh, have some kind of same kinds of checks and balances that we do have. Like with situation, I think it's a great idea, and and others. I, I think the. You know, I did have some criticisms, and Bob Zimmer was also on the board, but also was only around the same time, and I remember. I think they are, um, I'm more sanguine about it, both because I've been, uh, the, the, the rod of the legacy universities has become more apparent to me recently, and any alternative ought to be encouraged, but also because I think they have been um, dealing with some of the initial growings. I think one of them is he must not allow um, the ideal of free speech to be conflated with the political right thought that they stacked it much too much with the right wing um, uh, figures. Uh, I think that providing a kind of lifeboat for canceled academics is not the same as building program of the best possible uh, academics. That's right. Uh, I think the uh, problem with all startups, education startups, is what to do about science. That I don't think you could be an educated person in the 21st century without science. That would be your track as far as students. Science needs labs. Labs need a lot of infrastructure, government grants, uh, 
committees so it could actually human subjects, animal subjects. So there's the problem of how you provide a science education uh, without having to replicate a lot of the apparatus established in the university. Yeah, it certainly is financially it's a formidable undertaking to turn the university, especially a great university like they're trying to do. Maybe in partnership with the science with these uh, nearby universities. But anyway, I do wish that well, and I, I've been involved in other startups like the New uh, College for the Humanities of London. Um, my friend Stu Costin uh, ran um, the Nerva Project in San Francisco. So uh, I think it's good for there to be competition. I think they're good to be alternative models to try out. Nice. I want to go back to the, the Council on Academic Freedom and, and, and talk a bit more about, about what you're doing there. So you, um, Harvard launched the Council on Academic Freedom in <coughs> April. Paradox Academy, a month or two earlier, started organizing an, a new initiative of campus communities. So as you know, we're a membership organization with well, you're one of our members, one of our active members, with uh, now over 6,000 uh, professors all around the world who share these values, a growing, a growing organization. One of our innovations over the but past this heterodox year, academy is just a like I say, like I said before, this is just another kind of orthodoxy. They just want like what other what mainstream academia thinks are like bad ideas to be like put up on a pedestal. Start these start gathering our professors on campuses together into communities. We call them communities. You call yours a council. You know, we will probably be working on a, a network that connects various councils and communities across the country and beyond and in the near future. I'm just interested in the kind of activities your council might, might undertake. And I wrote, I, I read the op-ed last night in preparation for this interview, and you were just beginning it, but I, I, I found five different activities that you mentioned in that op-ed as things you might, the council might undertake at some point. I'll just read them out as I, as I read them. So among the things the council might do, you said, include workshops on academic freedom, um, uh, orienting new faculty to the importance of free speech at Harvard. Three, adopting and, and enforcing policy. This is also really interesting because yeah. the backdrop of all this is that the university president at Harvard was fired for not basically clamping down on pro-Palestinian, anti-Likud government protests. Academic freedom. Four, providing collective support for individuals who are targeted for protected speech. And five, um, during moments of crisis, speaking to the administrators other year, uh, and calmly, deliberately, and forcefully, as you as you put it. Um, have you begun any of these things? What's what's happening on campus? Yeah. Actually, started. You've been building. It's which like, is have you done anything? He's like, nah. <laughs> the one that just I, I just want to really emphasize is that then you were able to go from this guy accidentally just asked a really good question. He's like, have you done any of this stuff? Or are you just taking interviews, friend? To 160 within a half a year, yeah, is truly a remarkable and and, and a newsworthy accomplishment. Beyond that, beyond the building the numbers, what have you done to build the numbers? How, how, yeah, that teaches. It's like we're still at the raising awareness part of this, the uh, action phase. Eh, who knows? We did have a lecture on academic freedom by my colleague. Nick oh Paul. yeah, we had a lecture. <laughs> no, we're asking if you did anything. Oh, nice. Speak. Uh, for faculty? No, no open to community. And that we plan to have one a semester. We have you had that last spring or other than that's I have somebody uh, give a talk uh, once a semester. Talk. And and so was that was that an, um that was to, it was for the for the purpose of make of people understanding the for it's a free speech, of course. Was it also a recruiting tool? Were you thinking of it that way? Um indirectly. In fact, we do want we, we 
Dalton, since we are academics, we want to go beyond just saying, you know, free speech rocks, or, you know, free speech. But what is free speech? Uh, and it isn't just free speech in the sense of you can shoot your mouth off about anything, but also a culture of civil discourse. And that's one of the things that... But what about the uncivil parts, the nasty parts of the discourse? Like, this, this bothers me, too, because I am, you know, probably to the detriment of my channel, especially to the detriment sometimes of this intellectual Dollar Tree project. Sometimes I'm the nasty part of the discourse. Is that, the, is that a problem? I'm not fucking threatening anybody. You know, people talk about Twitch terms of service being pretty strict. I'm not getting kicked off of Twitch, not getting any little no-no notes from Twitch, but I'm the nasty part of the discourse. So this is, this is, this is like fucking, this is like, this is that Reddit shit basically where it's like tone over payload where this guy is like mostly concerned with people's tone. So if you disagree with him in the wrong way, or in his case, if you uh, mentioned that he was uh, still friends with Epstein after Epstein's first conviction, oh, well, that's uh, uncivil discourse. Now you, now you, now, now I've blocked you. And he, he will. If you're on, still on Twitter and you were to go uh, tweet at him, be like, hey, uh, how's, uh, sorry about your buddy Jeffrey uh, uh, offing himself. Ooh, he's going to block you in 10 fucking minutes. Emphasize from this lecture. And there's another one of our aims, that you should be able to have a conversation uh, over matters in which you disagree without calling the other person a bigot or... But what if... No, no, no. What if I talk to somebody about something and I'm like, oh shit, I think you're a bigot. <laughs> then what? What happens then, Pinker? What happens then if I've had a discussion with somebody or, or consumed some enough of someone's material maybe to form an opinion about their character and now I express my opinion about their fucking character? Now, oh, now we've got a fucking problem? Censor, so you used the word civil, then you used the word constructive. Those are different things, right? We can have... Isn't our aim in the universities have a special kind of speech? It's not just free speech for any purpose. There's this reasons why the First Amendment protects all kinds of speech. Speeches that's intemperate, sometimes false, misleading, all kinds of speech can be, can be protected by the First Amendment. But at the universities who care about a certain kind of speech that is aimed at pursuing truth, the civility... But, that's, civility that, but that's, that's, that's actually, the, again, the heart of the matter here is that, like, we don't... You can't just fucking keep rehashing, like, for example, like phrenology. You can't just keep rehashing the idea of, you know, can we measure somebody's skull to determine if they're the superior race? No, you can't. And people feel that way about, like, something Steven Pinker is a fan of, is his race IQ shit. People feel that way about that. A lot of people do. And a lot of people who've done a lot of work, like, sort of studying a cognition and the the way that we perceive the intelligence of others like a lot of people have done a lot of work on that and the, i think the jury's in on that shit but so it's okay if steven pinker wants to talk about it but that doesn't mean anybody has to take him seriously and if you get if you spend if every interview you bring up charles murray or you bring up like uh, iq differences between uh racial groups well yeah eventually somebody's gonna be like fuck i think you might be a bigot and then now what? Now, now is the conversation over? Or is the free speech, did, did the speech stop happening? Are we not allowed to talk about that? Important. 
How the popcorn of value is civility? Yeah. Is it the season's destructiveness? I'm not sure. It, it, it's not identical to it. It's you know, arguably a means to the end in that since it's the ideas that we're pursuing, but we are primates and we inevitably engage in dominance contests and, and massive displays of kind of get in the way of pursuing the truth. So to the extent that we keep it civil, uh, we attach its own virtues. Uh, but that is also a way to make sure that these prominent primary topics display so get in the way. Now, we do but what if I think it's uncivil to be racist, even if you do so in what you believe to be a polite tone? What if I find that uncivil? What if I'm at a dinner party or in a class or at a meeting um, of, you know, if I'm the faculty at a university? I mean, we don't want that, right? I'm kind of a jerk. I'd be cool. The kids would love me, but I'd be pr probably the worst <laughs> faculty member that's like that scene in Ghostbusters where he gets fired, where uh, Venkman gets fired from the university. They're like, uh, your hypotheses are your hypotheses are stupid. Your work is uh, subpar, and your conclusions are highly questionable. You're a poor scientist, Doctor Venkman. And he's like, but the kids love me. I'd be that guy. Um, but what if I'm in a meeting like that, and these people, the, the people in the meeting, are just talking like shit about gay people? Then. But they're doing it in just such a polite way. Maybe one of them even has a fucking pocket watch. Well, I, I still find that to be uncivil. What now? The uh, right in emphasizing they're not the same because at some point you don't want to be so civil that it's just rude to disagree with someone. Uh, and yeah, and as we well know, that's right. Even academic debates that we uh, that we don't want to disperse can get, you know, as I say, heated. They can get uh, personal. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do, you know, about that in terms of legislation or policy. You can, you know, pass a law saying you've got to be nice. Uh, I think that's something more that heterodox academy can uh, foster and, you know, and, and encourage. But when it comes to kind of policy and uh, enforcement, uh, they're obviously very hard to enforce. Let me, let me just say that HXA... We have something called the HXA way, a set of norms that cultural norms we want to encourage in the universities. Being nice is not one of our norms. It's fine to be nice. We, we try to be nice. People. I think being nice to other people is generally a cultural norm. If you don't know somebody, I think the people here, people who listen to this podcast and the people watching my live stream, if you don't know somebody, you're going you're gonna to be nice to them. Why wouldn't you? Life's a lot easier if you do that. You're cool to people. <laughs> um, but, but, but among the norms are things like make your case with evidence. Yes. Social, social, show some humility. Yeah. Be aware you might be, you know, all those kinds of norms that, that again, are compatible with sometimes, sometimes, you know, kind of tough conversations. I've, I've heard many and been involved in some myself that are in, your, in, the, in the heat of the conversation, tried to make a point. You don't always, uh, I remember when I first arrived at Brown, uh, we invited Martha Nussbaum. I invited Martha Nussbaum to give a talk and I was, and I, was talking to an older colleague at the time, and I said, so who should be the respondent to give critical remarks to her, her paper? And the respondent, who was a generation ahead of me, he said, well, that would be rude to have someone criticize her. Just think we're speaker. I said, well, wait a minute. That's why we're here, right? We're, we're not here. No, 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 no. You're at the, no, no, no. Your job is to fucking educate uh, young adults. Your job isn't actually, like, join a fucking debate club, asshole. Civility should be part of it. We do a course. But we're here for you know, robust challenges and there's nothing like if you're doing academic work, the criticism and all that's going to come in peer in the peer review. If you, if you're publishing things, 
kind of respect to show it. Yes, that's right. And civility has to allow for that, of uh, strong, strong disagreement. But uh, without the distracting personal invective, ad hominem argument. Uh, but you made ad hom. He, he already he well the ad hom not the he engaged in the ad hominem fallacy earlier by suggesting that the problem with the university is is that people are liberal or too lefty or whatever, and that's like well you're wrong because you're this. It's not like you're wrong and you're too liberal, which is not the ad hominem fallacy. And again, I. I mean, I've spoken to many people I disagree with, and I've told people that I think they're crazy. I'm not like you're crazy because you're from Nevada or some shit like that. That's dumb. Uh, arguments from authority and, and so other distractions from the overarching goal of uh, understanding the world that is the truth. And so when, when we think about HXA and the communities that we're building, we talk about talk to our leaders to think of themselves on these across three terms. So we want them to be experts about open inquiry, exemplars of open inquiry, and advocates of open inquiry. Mm -hmm. And we think of those as kind of stage evolutionary mm -hmm. process. So we our idea is you don't hook the academics who you want to have meeting your communities, your canvas to councils by trying to get the advocates out there first and foremost. Some of them will be effective, but that's also a certain personality type who wants to go out there and and challenge people, but rather the first and the easiest step perhaps is to encourage people to be experts, to become experts. And so the experts, then exemplars, and then more perhaps publicly they even have like that. Does that resonate with you? Is that, the, the, yeah, how many you said a few minutes ago about- well, You know what's crazy? And then people I know who are experts on things are gonna be the first one to tell you that they're not an expert. <laughs> like People with like real expertise tend to be kind of humble because once you, once you have expertise, you know what you don't know. Well, very, you didn't say bang pots and pants, but that's kind of what I heard you say. You're not, you're not trying to get rabble rousers. You're trying to attract people to seriousness who want to learn more about open inquiry, who want to renew the, tr tr the tradition. Is that? Yes, and, uh, absolutely. At the Center of Academic Pluralism here in New York, we do a, what did they cut out there? a seminar. Um, where residential fellows and visitors come together to talk about issues of open inquiry. In today's session, Steve Ninker came and talked about uh, new, his new book manuscript on called Don't Go There, Common Knowledge and the Science of Harmony, Hypocrisy, and Outrage. We just finished that conversation. You and I, can you tell? Oh, Don't Go There, a story of uh, Stephen Pinker when you mention uh, his friendship with Jeff Epstein. Oh, don't go there, girl. Common knowledge is an outplays it to this. Yes, common knowledge uh, in the, the sense of that I'm I've been uh, studying it, that I'm writing about in its book is a technical concept from logic and game theory that refers to everyone knowing that everyone knows something, which is logically and uh, many ways different. Merely everyone knows something. So uh, it's social. It's deeply social. It, yes, it's social. so. Yeah, we have to steam it. Yes, it is social epistemology in the sense that you are aware of other knowers and you know what they know. Um, so, and in particular, ad infinitum, you know what they know about what they know about what others know over the store others know. Uh, the, it sounds like an exotic concept, but I have argued that it corresponds to our, our gut intuition that something is public or out there uh, that... Um, the difference between something that is you know, whispered about on the QT or hinted at through euphemism in New Lindo 
and something that is blurted out is in your face that uh, everyone, everyone knows about. And uh, yeah, a lot of phenomenon in economic and political life uh, are driven by common laws, like our conventions, like using paper currency, driving on the right, are all things that work out because we can expect everyone else to expect, everyone else expects to obey them, like driving on the right. Uh, that uh, war. Yeah, but what if? What about? What if we? What if? What if somebody thinks we shouldn't drive on the right side of the road? Accepting a piece of paper in exchange for something of value, you do it because you know other people will in turn accept it. Why would they do that? Because they know that other people in turn will accept it. Uh, unless you have hyperinflation, where common knowledge that it's valuable uh, is is uh, challenged, and then they would become greedy to paper all over again, worthless. So that's an economic phenomenon, and I suggest that it underlies a lot of our interpersonal social phenomena. It's why we use so much euphemism in the window, connecting with dots, with blinds, rather than blurting something out when we want to prevent something from becoming common knowledge. We know that other people uh, know it, but we don't know that they know that we know that they know it. That often preserves social relationships. And in, it, it also drives cases where people can collectively recognize that something exists or is a problem and hack together to deal with it. So it also allows for sort of so common knowledge allows for cooperation, coordination. It, it is what is necessary for coordination, defined as people making complementary choices that benefit them both. So um, common knowledge can have dark sides and, and bright sides. Can you connect, can you connect common knowledge of an idea that's like it's a, it's a not in germane to what they're talking about, but these people think that a signal chain for your microphone and the associated digital signal processing is common knowledge. And so they just kind of did whatever. And now they sound like they're having this discussion in a fucking aquarium. Not on common knowledge to cancel, to cancel culture. Yeah. I think that a lot of the, um, shaming mobs that result in cancellations either by pressuring the leader to accede to the mob and make the mob go away by um, uh, canceling the person that has caused the outrage. Um, and the, uh, what happens to the per person who's being canceled, and then we know they're being canceled, come from the fact that, that norms in a community are all enforced by common knowledge. That is, there's some things that you decent people so don't do. That only works if everyone knows it, but everyone knows it. So, if someone reaches that norm, particularly in public where it's common knowledge, they insult a racial minority, they violate a sexual taboo, uh, then that challenges the norm if it's done in public. That is, it's common Oh, yeah, yeah. Being insulting a racial minority just for being a racial minority or like yeah, violating a sexual taboo. I mean, I don't, I mean, you know, with consent, all things are fine as long as, you know, people are capable of consenting. But in this case, I think you just mean sexual harassment. Well, yeah, it's kind of common knowledge. You don't sexually harass people. And that, like, I used to think it was common knowledge that you shouldn't be a racist, but I'm starting to have, <laughs> starting to have my fucking questions about that one at this point. Knowledge and it, it, it uh, sparks the need to punish it to. Uh, the safeguard the norm, and the punishment also has to be common knowledge, so that you know that everyone knows that it has been punished, and therefore the norm it survives, survives that breach. 
And so in academia, we have, unfortunately, a number of beliefs that become moral norms. That's not what we're in the business of doing, is maybe making it moral. But these aren't like academic, like the things he, like a lot of this stuff is just like how you behave at work. This is one of the, this is, I'm telling you, this is just all down to like, well, I'm a tenured professor and I shouldn't have to behave in a fucking ethical way when I go to work. That's like the, at the fucking very bottom of a lot of this. And I think that academia needs to fucking just as a broader, like cultural thing that academia needs to disabuse itself of that. That is not true. Like <clears throat> you, if you're a professor and people don't like you at work, you suck at your job. Some factual matters are immoral. We've other factual matters. You know, what's, what's true is true. The truth can't, the truth can't be racist. But we have slipped into a norm system that depends on affirming certain factual beliefs, triggering this urge to punish people who challenge it. They this very human response. And by the way, challenges means ask questions. I mean, ask you questions. I mean, it could. But in the case of what we call fancy culture, it What it means is censoring the uh, expression of the opinion, punishing the uh, person expressing it. Uh, so the this whole <clears throat> dynamic. The other thing they're mad at is they're just mad at my mom when I was eight years old, and uh, she was like, "Hey, did you know that you shouldn't say everything you think, you idiot?" <laughs> they're also mad at her. <laughs> social norms by collective punishment uh, runs afoul of the norm of challenging beliefs in order to find out which ones are true or false. Because some of the beliefs he challenged may be ones that are symbolic talismans or world talismans in a community. Uh, such as, you know, that mm, used to be that men and women are indistinguishable, that they're, that, that we're all like slings, but all sex do was just come from socialization. Someone bizarrely. I don't think people think that. Uh, we now have a different one that there are no such things as, as men and women, that they're nothing but the stereotypes that the last generation tried to eliminate. Back well, no, but the, the stereotypes of the last generation will say it has its thumb on the scale. <laughs> like, yes, it had the, the thumb is on the scale there. <clears throat> There's someone who wears long hair and a dress, uh, and that, that uh, being a woman has nothing to do with chromosomes and hormones and, uh, and, and gadgets, in which is the set of issues that Carol Lubin and others um, have had such difficulties with. But, like, I want to ask what if. About the- what if I don't care about those things? Like legitimately, what if I don't care? What if I'm just like, well, this person, you know, to me, the first impression, I don't, I don't even know. What if I don't care about their gametes or their fucking chromosomes? What if I just like, I'm just like trying to be cool to people. And then if I uh, misgender somebody, they can just correct me and i'm like oh sorry i'm like i hope you don't have to remind me again because i know that it fucking that fucking it's not cool and then if they have to remind me again now i feel dumb (laughs) right now i feel like an asshole and what if what if that's fine that that's how society works in the seminar just now we were talking about uh cancel culture and the connection to common knowledge let me just turn it as we as we close here. I'm going to invite you to think about think Thank with me God about closing. common knowledge, harnessing common knowledge for this cause of academic freedom on campuses. Is there a way to build a culture of 
I'm going to try to formulate this. I'll, I'll need your help to formulate a, a, a common knowledge culture of academic freedom, of the idea that there's a, a common sense understanding what a university is. I know what it is. You know what it is. I know that you oh, know. I, that I, think I think that they don't know what it is. They think it's a debate club and it's not. You're educating young adults, mostly young adults, but older people, older pe people my age and older are at universities too. And they do fine. It's not a debate club. Friendo, join a debate club. It's this thing that yeah. is a place that, a special place where you come to have conversations and to learn and to grow and to experiment. Is it possible to use some of the common knowledge machinery and, and, and insights to help us think about how to reform these universities? But what, do you, what do you make of that? I, I think so, in the sense that um, there are a lot of the cancellation campaigns seem completely innocent of the very idea that there is a virtue of academic freedom. It just doesn't, it's you know, self evidently doesn't occur to them. Uh, otherwise, they think twice, so at least they would justify it in terms of why. The cancellation of ways the value of academic case okay, so didn't even do that. But, do, but this this assumes that nobody uh, considers that. That is, <clears throat> nobody basically that, that that nobody thinks about. Well, is this really a battle that I would like to pick? I think people think about that. Yeah, I think people generally is like in academia too. I mean, these are these are uh, people who they're academics. I think their job, part of their job, is to know how to pick their battles. And the students, some of them are 19, and maybe they don't know how to pick their battles yet. So fucking, so fucking what? Your job as a professor is to set a good example and to educate them. I mean, I mean academic freedom just is out there as concepts. So just making that, I, I, it made me huge out to get everyone to sign on to it as a supreme value. But at the very least, they'll know that it is widely held. It is nominally what universities are committed to. Therefore, if they're going to try to load it, being better articulated their reason, which you know, in the past they haven't done, I mean, most often you can't do it, which is why they haven't done it. But in addition, they haven't done it because it hasn't occurred to them that it's an idea out there that has to be acknowledged. So I'm just, I'm just interested in this idea that we could try to think about, I basically say we care about culture, academic culture, but not just having free speech rights, important, those, those are both those are our campuses, but also building the habits of mind, the kind of policies that encourage these ways of thinking. Are there ways to, to um, does the council at Harvard, for example, have on its agenda or its radar screen the idea of trying to change the culture of Harvard over time, yeah. uh, slowly? Do you have any thoughts about that? It's, it's obviously harder to do because uh, a... Uh, Culture is a grassroots phenomenon. It's a, it's a wicking anybody can contribute. Uh, it's a, it has a network effect. Sometimes things can ripple freely and become viral. But institutions matter. Institutions and po other policies that other policies or institutional changes yeah, that so, might support the kind of culture, the kind of common knowledge culture that we might like at a place like Harvard. Yeah, so there certainly are policies. The problem with common knowledge is everybody thinks they already know what it is. <laughs> I don't know what else to say here. I think that people think that common knowledge is just that everybody knows it. They, it's sort of like common sense. And it's like, well, you know, you're just like sort of projecting your own view of the world onto this idea of common knowledge or common sense. Because how else are you going to do it? Are you going to poll everybody? Um, and I think they can give a nudge to the, to the culture. 
uh, policies like we, we're advocating for the university to adopt the Calvin principles from the University of Chicago. These are the principles of, of, of university neutrality. Yes, yeah, Calvin with a K. Uh, we would like to university get rid of mandatory diversity statements for academic job applicants, which can serve to either turn a whole but generation. Just copy and people just copy and paste that shit. Shut the fuck up. Job applicants into liars, or um, uh, or weed out anyone who disagrees with a certain narrow orthodoxy. It seems like a form of forced political speech. Exactly. I mean, now you know, and what, what happens is now that so. Postdocs that on the job market are getting but diversity and inclusion right statements are, include like things like I won't discriminate against people and I will try to include uh, all different kinds of people and in fact the diversity and inclusion statement probably talks about viewpoint diversity I would guarantee that it does diversity statements so at least that way we're fine they don't have to feel guilty about actually composing something they don't believe it uh, that's another policy but you're right that not everything can be done by policy. Some things have to be done by podcast um, evolutionary changes in the culture, which are difficult to engineer from the top down. Yeah, this morning when we talk about our, our leaders of the Canvas Community Network being experts, exemplars, and advocates, kind of in that directional mm-hmm. way, and that's what we're really thinking about. And they have the power of a professor to show young people by his or her manner in the classroom. Yeah, the way they go about interacting with fellow professors on that, and in a debate or in their in their in their writings. But the That's professors a, that are you know, when was the last? Like, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I was at a, I was at a, I was at Berkeley for undergrad and uh, grad school, and uh, political science. I don't think I remember any time going to a debate between two of the fucking professors. Anybody else? University in the humanities or political science here to remember uh, doing any of that? That being part of your experience there? I don't remember it. Do you remember it? I don't think it's part of the fucking experience. The kind of example that we hope will, will, will shine through and compete with the existing example, the existing paradigm, the existing culture, which is just seems so dending to so many students because it's just as a, 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 an avoidance of conversations. It's a of closing down questions you would like to ask, and note that you can ask. We hope that there could be competition in that fight. No, and and, and that is uh, 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 I would be working well. Um, at, you know, it's something where you will catch results overnight, presumably. I didn't. It is a as with all cultural changes. Yeah, sometimes it can creep in at a time, and then suddenly uh, I take over. So, so let me just say for HXA, we're all we're just watching with great interest, as many people are uh, with the council's activities at Harvard as you. We should grow and develop. Um, just, we really, rec- we're just so happy for you for having launched this. And I just want to thank you for joining me on the Nerdops Out Loud today. Just been an honor. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. Okay, thank so you I want to talk about uh, cancel culture and Stephen Pinker real quick, if that's okay with everybody, as my, like, I usually close this out and say a little something. Uh, Stephen Pinker is one of the most uncanceled person in the fucking world. This dude wrote an expert opinion of some kind for uh, Jeffrey Epstein's first trial. No problem there. I don't care if it's for the defense or for the prosecution. You have a right that is part of the uh, process of being of a, of a criminal case being adjudicated. No problem there. Um, after that, he decided to hang out with the guy. There are pictures of him and Lawrence Krauss all fucking cheesing with uh, Jeff Epstein after he was involved in the first prosecution of Epstein, where Epstein was convicted of 
sex crimes with minors. And it wasn't like you just happened to be at a ball or something that Epstein was at. Like, there's tons of people like that where I'm like, well, whatever. You just went to like a social event in fucking Manhattan and uh, Jeff Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell happened to be there. You probably didn't even know they were on the guest list. You may not have even been aware that they were there at the time and you may not have even been aware of what was going on. That's different than posing for photos after being involved in a fucking criminal trial where the guy was convicted of what Epstein was convicted of. And then, now, and then he uh, was not really scrutinized by his university at all for that behavior. Um, which I find to be crazy. Absolutely fucking crazy that there was no scrutiny from his university about that. You know that people talk. So I bet there'd be people talking at Harvard, especially especially around the time that Epstein did or did not kill himself. I think he did, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Um, this is not a canceled man. This is the opposite of that. This is a man with a platform and privilege whose behavior is abhorrent, absolutely abhorrent behavior. So abhorrent, I think he knows that it's abhorrent behavior because if you bring it up on Twitter, he will block you immediately. As far as I know, he's never made any statements about it, never apologized for it. And again, it wasn't like he was just taking grant money from the motherfucker and then ignoring him otherwise. Um, there was a recent uh, memoir of somebody who was at the, the island who was referring, he referred to a Harvard professor who was swimming in the, one of the pools at uh, Epstein's Island, only referred to the person by first name. People were like, well, that can't be Stephen Hawking. And I'm like, oh, I think I know what Stephen that was. I think it was Stephen Pinker. Nobody else seems to have picked up on it. There are other professors named Stephen at Harvard. But none of them I know of that were uh, buddies with uh, Mr. Epstein. So this is uh, not a canceled man. This man is disgusting. He's a fucking disgusting person. Um, and it has nothing to do with his academic work. And the University of Harvard, <clears throat> it is a disgrace to their university that they continue to associate with this man. And that's the end of the intellectual dollar tree. Uh, live viewers, uh, stick around. And uh, thanks for uh, kind of putting up with some of the internet problems we had tonight. We started an hour late. I appreciate that. Podcast viewers, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Or podcast listeners, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But we did have some technical difficulties tonight. And I just want to say, uh, podcast listeners, whether you love this show or listen to it because you hate us. And uh, especially the live viewers, fucking thank you so much. Having a, still having a great time doing this. And it's, uh, it's a privilege uh, to be able to continue to do this. And pay my bills doing it. This is Boomers. This is by Periscope. I'm going to uh, change the colors of the lights in this room, change the contents of my beverage, and we'll be back with the post game.
Did you know Echoplex has a 24-hour stream? That's right. Check out our 24-7 music stream at echoplexmedia.com live or at eplex.xyz. Our huge self-submitted local music library plays the best tunes the Bay Area has to offer, adding commercial-free, well, except for ours, and even by request. Check out the player on echoplexmedia.com or at eplex.xyz. Bookmark it and enjoy it all day. Echoplex is very supportive of our local music scene, and we hope you enjoy the soundtrack they've so graciously sent in for us to play on our network. If you like who you hear, please go check them out. The names of the artists are displayed on the player at echoplexmedia.com and at eplex.xyz.